Cosmic Salon, and it is my deep pleasure to present a world-renowned traveler, scholar, researcher, friend of getting into the dirt with uh, not a, an eye towards controversy, a man that holds the Holy Grail, has pointed out the staff of Moses, and many other deep mysteries have come to the light through this fantastic soul known as Graham Phillips. I have long enjoyed Graham's contribution to the greater collective. He has done a great job trailblazing and bringing forth many mysteries to light and if nothing else posing more questions as to what has happened in the past where we're going where we've been and bringing forth the fact that the world of mysteries is ever expanding and there are always more to unfold so with that, I'm going to welcome in Graham Phillips. Welcome, Graham. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> it's just a great pleasure. I'm so thrilled. How are you doing this evening over there? Fine. It's very quiet where I am, so I wouldn't know what's going on in the outside world. <laughs> Nothing, really. We're all in lockdown. I know. <laughs> Same here. It's like Disney outside. It's so gorgeous, and yet everything's very crazy. I would like to ask you a couple questions and just get some foundation work. Now, you are very, very well known, and so I'm curious about young Graham, though. Were you always, did you always have a penchant for the mysterious universe, for uh, the mysteries and diving into wanting to, I guess, expose or learn more or bring forth. We always a strange child. Well, yeah, I suppose <laughs> I, I went to a I went to a boarding school, and one day we watched the television when I was about fourteen, and there was this uh, there was this TV movie on about some people doing a a Ouija board. And we all thought, wow, that's cool. You know, they were doing it with a glass and letters around it rather than one of those, you know, actual purpose-made things. And so we actually, I mean, we were at boarding school, so we had to hide away from the teachers. So we actually hid in a broom closet and did a seance, <laughs> and it started moving around. Now, I'm pretty sure somewhere is pushing it, but I was so fascinated by it then that I started to go to the local spiritualist church down the road. I snuck out of school and went to the spiritualist church. I remember thinking, I'm getting away with this. I don't know I'm sneaking out of school until the headmaster saw me one time. He says, 
hello, Phillips, have you been down there, Spiritist Church again? <laughs> it didn't seem to mind. I suppose it's better than taking drugs. Anyway, but so that's kind of how I kind of got interested in the paranormal to start off with. And after I, I when I went to college, I did a um, course in journalism. And when I came out after a short period of working for a, a newspaper, I became editor of a magazine called Strange Phenomena, which was basically, I saw this, you know, that this opportunity was there. And I thought, I've got to take that. That's what I'm really interested in. And that was investigating uh, supernatural mysteries. Um, the first mystery that I really, you know, I mean, I was investigating people who'd claimed to have seen everything from UFOs to ghosts to hauntings, you know, poltergeists, you name it. Um, but a lot of these, what I saw, I thought, well, these people could be imagining it. I didn't see anything myself until one day at the magazine, we investigated a case where there had been um, a gemstone, a green gemstone that had once belonged to Mary Queen of Scots that was set in a silver ring mm. that had been hidden after Mary Queen of Scots's death. And it was said that a whole host of murals and paintings were hidden somewhere in this uh, nearby manor house, an Elizabethan manor house in sort of like the late 1500s. And these were supposed to lead to the whereabouts of this. I think the stone was supposed to have magical properties and it was removed from the ring. But somehow this stone was always said to be hidden somewhere in the, the in the area of this manor house in central England, uh, in the countryside somewhere. And the clues to where it was had been left by this guy, you know, 400 years ago. No one had ever found these supposed paintings until around about the time we were doing this, which was in 1979, there was, um, they'd done renovations to the building to open it to the public. And behind wood panelling in an upstairs corridor, they'd discovered all these, um, this, this whole wall mural depicting, that had been painted back in the early 1600s. And it seemed that this was, these were the clues to the whereabouts of this stone. And I thought, well, this is weird. I mean, it's only just been found just as we're doing this research. It's, <laughs> uh, it's quite a synchronicity, a coincidence. Yes. But went there and the paintings depicted nine hero heroic characters from myth and legend. And the central figure was called King Arthur, showed King Arthur wielding Excalibur, cutting a very long story short. The, basically the clues led us to a nearby bridge and directed us, if you like, to the foundations of this bridge. And behind a stone, we discovered this uh, short sword or long dagger with Mary Queen of Scots's coat of arms on it. And, it, you know, this was like it had been there for hundreds of years. And we thought, wow. And cutting another long story short, <laughs> this sword held clues that led to another nearby um, river and a bend in it called the Swan's Neck. Mary Queen of Scots was known in the code to the people who had supported her cause as become as called the Swan, and she was said to have the most graceful neck. And I thought, Swan's Neck, this has got to be where it is. Yes. And cutting along another long story <laughs> short, at the uh, beside the banks of this river in an old kind of mound 
we, a few feet down, we uncovered this brass casket covered in years of silt and sediment. And when it was opened, inside was this green stone. It was like, obviously, it had been set in something at one point, like a ring, because it was like a half, you know, oval-shaped, round on the one side, flat on the other. Yes. It was made from jade. But it's I mean, we compared it with paintings of Mary Queen of Scots with this ring, and it was identical. So we had found by following a series of historical clues, the whereabouts of a, an, a, 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 an ancient relic, if you like, because this stone was believed to have various supernatural powers. The reason why I then sort of, this was a case which involved historical clues and historical mystery, but alongside this ran another story, because when we took the stone back to the... Uh, the, the offices of the magazine we were running, all sorts of things started to happen, like poltergeists, strange people saw strange apparitions. There was a, a weird sort of incense-smelling incense smoke used to fill the place. And lots of people stood witness to this. And this went on for some time until eventually the, the place was abandoned because all the electricity blew and nobody understood <laughs> why it was you know, why the electricity and the wiring was all going wrong. And so we had to move out of there. It was, you know, it was rented and into somewhere else. And and that that's a very brief explanation of how I first got into investigating historical mysteries and a certain amount of the paranormal. And after I, you know, the magazine, eventually I, I left there and started writing books. I look at your body of work and the successes, the great successes you've had in your treasure hunts, so to speak. It is phenomenal. What do you feel sets you apart as far as your success rate in unfolding these mysteries and unlocking the clues and actually having an accuracy that is damn good? Well, four things, really. The first is that people who investigate ancient mysteries, whatever they might happen to be, are either going to be historians who basically just investigate historical documents, what's recorded by people at the time. And that can be very time-consuming. It's easier these days because there's a lot of stuff on the internet, but original source material documents, which could, in the old days, it could be in any library in the world, you know, and they didn't have a cent. You didn't have an internet back then when I started. And you get historians who investigate, you know, they investigate what they've learned in ancient documents. Then you get archaeologists who will go to a site, dig them up, and scientifically discover as much as they can about the site by what was left behind in the rubbish, if you like, of the people who used to live there, be they prehistoric people, Romans, Saxons, whoever. The problem is between these two types. Archaeologists do not like historians, and historians do not like archaeologists. <laughs> um, academically, they just never mix. So you've got a whole bunch of evidence from the historians. You've got a whole load of evidence from the archaeologists. And nobody in academia, anyway, within university system, is actually investigating, putting this these two lots of information together. Then you've also got folklorists, people who investigate myths and legends, very often there's some truth behind myths and legends as they gradually build up. Yes. These folklorists, historians, archaeologists, have nothing to do with them, so they have nothing to do with the... So there's three lots of 
information, if you like, that no one's getting an overall view of. And that's what I do. I take this overall view of original historical material, what the archaeologists discovered. So as a journalist, if you like, I will go out, I will interview these people who know everything about a particular period in history or a particular mystery, then talk to the archaeologists. What do we know about that period? What do we know about this place? And uh, again, with folklorists, people who investigate the myths and legends of history. But I said there was a fourth kind of advantage I have. I keep getting a lot of strange, lucky breaks. I remember I told you about this synchronicity, like yes. the, the, these pictures were discovered just a you know few days, really, before myself and colleagues went and visited this place. And they'd been hidden for hundreds of years. Well, these strange synchronicities come into into effect. It's happened many times. I I wouldn't call it that I'm psychic in the sense that I can actually pick up information about these places necessarily, but it's as if something kind of, it sounds nuts, but it's sort of guiding me to help me along. I do tend to have a lot of luck with this. But from from a sensible point of view, it's an overall view of lots of different types of information, which academics just don't do. You're bringing to light something that is just amazes me when I look at the field, all these fields, the three in particular you mentioned, and how they do not seem to play together for some reason. And there is, even now, but there are new people in these fields coming forward thanks to you and uh, others like you, but you've really been a trailblazer with this, that are saying, wait, let's let's work together here. But with this, I have a question about that. Do you think there's some sort of narrative that keeps all these lines of inquiry separate from each other? So we see in the university system, and you know this, when you are getting funded to do something, it's like there's a protection aspect with scholars, for example, to protect their work, want to guard their treasure, so to speak, like a dragon. And therefore, they seem to not reach out or want to coalesce with others. And I'm wondering if this is by design or is it just hubris? Well, I think for an example would be, I mean, I've had many times when, you know, I've had problems of the sort you're talking about where academics don't want to get involved with supposedly amateurs. They won't even get involved in pe- with people outside their particular discipline who are other academics, yet alone amateurs. I mean, I'll give you one example. There was a... A lady I know, she writes books, uh, Lynn Picknett and her co-author, Clive Prince. They wrote a book that actually helped inspire the Da Vinci Code. She was the first one, some years ago now, who discovered that uh, the person sitting next to Jesus in the Da Vinci's Last Supper is a woman or looks very much like a woman. And that's what the whole of this... uh, Da Vinci Code thing was about Jesus marries Mary Magdalene and she was at the Last Supper and they got married and they had children and and it's their descendants who are are kicking around today. She was the first one basically to come up with this whole Mary Magdalene thing. Now, she did very well. I mean, the book sold okay, and especially when the Da Vinci Code came out. But every time she tried to get on to uh, major TV networks about... uh, 
having a documentary made about this or being filmed about it, they would say, oh, no, not interested. But what they were doing was passing on all this information to somebody in academia, an historian, who then came out on the TV with their own documentary series all about this in three parts, all about Mary Magdalene, based completely on Lynn's work. Uh, and a friend of mine actually complained to the BBC about this. And they said, oh, you'll have to talk to the university. I mean, she did all this research. And the, the, this person I know phoned up the university and said, look, do you do realise that this lady that you have on, you know, this professor, has basically plagiarised Lynn's work? It's all been published years ago. She said, oh, well, no, no, all her work was done. She did it independently. You can't copyright history. She oh, didn't plagiarise anyone. She hasn't used the same words, obviously. And anyway, she came up with all this stuff herself for a PhD. And therein lies the difference. If you've got a PhD, <laughs> they'll have you on these shows. Um <laughs> Luckily, from in the last, I mean, I've always managed to get on TV with my stuff because I tend to investigate stuff that nobody else really investigates or they just stay away from. Yes. Um, for example, King Arthur. Nobody in the academic circles will touch King Arthur because he's regarded as being floaty and strange and weird. Yes. Oh, he's just made up. <laughs> he's just a, a legend. So they stay away from things like that. I've written about Robin Hood. I've written about the secret life of William Shakespeare. All things that no academic would dare touch. Lynn, unfortunately, was going, was writing about things that academics are quite happy to write about, you know. And um, so I haven't had that same kind of problem. I've had quite a few documentaries, well, loads, actually, over the years on my I am. BD account there's I think there's something like about 300 documentaries I've been in over the years so I haven't done too badly no you've you've you have been a guiding light for sure and there is a sense of uh serendipity that seems to run around you uh leading you into these narratives into literally into treasures from the past and exposing some dark secrets. And I think this is what has uh, attracted so many people to your work as well. You're a bit of a rebel, Graham. Well, I was, I actually, I feel really proud to have been described by George Lucas's company, um, Lucas Films, when they did the Indiana Jones. They did the last Indiana Jones film, which was about the Crystal Skull. So they did four Indiana Jones films. Um, and they decided when they brought the, I mean, this is going back to the late before 2000 when they still had, or early this century, when they still had uh, uh, box, uh, disc, you know, the things were still on yes. DVDs and they'd have <laughs> DVD sets. And you'd get a DVD set with the four films plus an extra bonus disc. And on that was a documentary they made of a couple of hours and they'd got somebody who'd really searched for magic stones, like in the first Indiana Jones film. Somebody had searched for the Grail in the second one. Somebody had searched for the Ark of the Covenant, and somebody had searched for crystal skulls. Well, I'd searched for everything in that <laughs> list, apart from crystal skulls. Uh, but they thought, well, we'll have you in one, we'll have you in the Grail one, because I'd done research into that. And um, when they put me on the, the, the um, on that uh, in that documentary... They described me as a real-life Indiana Jones as well as these other three guys. Um, so basically, 
I've been described as a real-life Indiana Jones. So I suppose that's it. But no real archaeologist or historian would want to be described like that. They'd get kicked out of of their particular academic institution. (laughs) Well, you know, when I was thinking about introducing you, I really wanted to say that. And yet some people are so touchy. I thought, I wonder how Graham feels about this. So I had never seen that footage on the box set of that, but you really are and embody that Indiana Jones energy, that vibe, and it has served you well over the years. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I suppose after I researched this green stone mystery, I mean, I'd kind of got in the idea of I've got to find something else that's never been found. And I thought, well, let's look for the, the grave of the historical King Arthur. Let's just find out if did he exist. This is before I started looking at the Grail legend. And with King Arthur, it actually brought in all the, these three different elements, for example, I was talking about that are out there, plus the fourth kind of synchronicity, if you like. Most people who had investigated Arthur had, had, had come up identifying people in the southwest of England that might have been an historical Arthur, but they never found anything with his name on it from the historical period he's said to have lived around 500 AD. But what I did, which nobody else had done, is people had realised that Arthur, in the ancient language that was spoken by the British at the time, which was called Brythonic, which evolved into modern Welsh. Yes. The name Arthur actually means the bear. Now, they thought, oh, well, this is obviously, you know, this was his name. He was called the bear. And I thought, hold on a minute. And I looked through all the source material, the actual stuff that had been written at or close to Arthur's time that still survived. And a lot of warriors in British history were named after animals. The fox, if they're cunning. The the snake, if they were considered deceitful by their enemies and so on. Lionheart. (laughs) Richard the Lionheart in the Middle Ages. Absolutely. So this was a title. Uh, an honorific, if you like. And so consequently, he must have had some real name as well. Um, <laughs> and maybe the reason why Arthur is not recorded in, in, from documents of the time is because he went down in history under his title and, no, and people had forgotten his real name. It doesn't say, you know, John Smith, you know, he is Arthur <laughs> the Bear. You know, he must have. So I thought, well, Arthur isn't his real name, so maybe it's not any point looking for an historical Arthur but I thought I'd look at the oldest historical records that name Arthur and they date from a couple of hundred years after his time there's a a monk called Gildas who actually sorry a monk called Nennius in Britain who writes about Arthur having fought various successful battles and he was fighting the Anglo-Saxons and they were the Britons there they were the Romanized Britons the Roman Empire had collapsed Britain was left pretty much defenseless and the native Britons the Celts were being invaded from what's Germany and southern Denmark by the Anglo-Saxons who eventually took over all of England Anglo-Saxon Angleland named after them England and pushed them into what is now the west of the country which became a separate um, pro, uh, province called Wales, a separate country, but part of the United Kingdom now. So he was he's said to have been fighting these particular people, and he was the last Briton who was actually successful in defeating the Saxons. After his death, the Saxons pretty much took over the whole of the country by about 600 AD, a uh, whole of what's now England. But 
This was it. What there was no kind of stories of damsels in distress or <laughs> fighting dragons and all the things we normally associate with the mythical King Arthur or the the medieval romances that were written about him about five hundred years after his death or later than that. Yes. Um, th- this was a purely historical account of a warlord called Arthur who brought together the various feuding tribes of Britain to beat the Saxons. And I thought, this just, the earlier you go back, the more sensible the stories sound. You <laughs> don't have all this weirdness and people casting spells and t- t- changing their, sh- you know, shapeshifters and all this sort of stuff. And so I decided that this character is worth investigating. But again, he's being called Arthur. So I thought, okay, the earliest stories all tell us that Arthur ruled from the most impressive city in Britain. Now, Camelot, everyone says, that's called Camelot. Unfortunately, Camelot was invented during the Middle Ages. The name was invented by a poet who needed something to rhyme with Lancelot. Before that, the word Camelot isn't associated with Arthur's Arthur's capital. It's just called his capital. It doesn't tell us where it is. So if Arthur, in 500 AD, did have enough power to rule over what's now pretty much most Britain then he must have ruled from, and he did rule from the most powerful city. What from the, and then we move to archaeology, away from historical documents, what from the archaeological perspective um, was the most powerful city, the most well-defended city in Britain, the capital of Britain, when he lived? Well, it wasn't London, because that had been taken over by the Anglo-Saxons, and it wasn't any of the other larger cities from ex-Roman times, it was now a place that you most people have never heard of, which is just now a ruin in open fields in the middle of central England called, that the Romans called Viraconium. It's just outside a little village called Roxeter, pretty much in the centre of England. So a lot of archaeology being done there, and I was absolutely thrilled to find out that at exactly the time Arthur is said to have lived, archaeologists have determined that the whole city was refortified, rebuilt, and a large palatial mansion was built at the centre of it. And they said, this must have been the, the, um, the seat of a very important British warrior or warlord. So I thought, wow, you know, this, whoever, whoever lived there, whoever was in charge of this place in 500 AD or around about then, maybe the historical Arthur. I found other, went back to looking at the old historical records. In the British Museum, I discovered that it mentions the name of the person who ruled there at that time, and his name was Owen Thangwin. So I thought maybe Owen Thangwin was actually the historical Arthur, and I couldn't believe it when I read the work of a British monk called Gildas, who wrote within living memory of Arthur's time, just about 40 years later. He refers to a number of the British kings that were living around 500 AD, and he refers to Owen Thangwin as, in Latin, Ursus, the bear. <laughs> so he actually, if you translated that into Brythonic, the language that was spoken in Britain at the time, he's actually referring to Arthur, to Owen Thangwin, as Arthur, the bear. <laughs> and if, you, if anyone doubts that Arthur means bear, or, uh, it's, you can actually look, in a, it's still being used today in Welsh language. They still call a bear Arth, or in some dialects, Earth. So it's still there. So it's so you see, that's me bringing archaeology and history to investigate something and open up 
uh, ideas that had never been in, uh, sort of explored before. So that's what started me with something solid. I knew where the figure, I knew who Arthur was, first time ever anybody had done that. And I actually figured out it fits with this, you know, impressive capital that he had. I know where he came from. Well, now I can start searching for his grave and whatever else. And this is what is so juicy about your research is that you really, you get to the core, the kernel, if you will, and move aside from or deeper into, because we are talking about the core of stuff, away from the mythological wrapping and all the fantastical, and you get to the nuts and bolts of a person. And I'm wondering how much kickback have you received from genealogers and some of the academics that are really tied to the idea that Arthur and others, not just Arthur, because you have really a broad scope here of dealing with historical figures and historical mysteries. How much flack or kickback have you received from these different factions, from the genealogists, from the historians, from well, the... Sto- yes, carry on. The historians basically don't tend to actually respond to this sort of thing. They don't sort of, um, they sort of, they won't get involved in arguments or anything. I mean, I know when I did a book about Shakespeare and his own personal life and explained that how Shakespeare wasn't recognised as a playwright, in his hometown. He wasn't regarded as anything special. He was considered something of an outcast, although he was very rich. Um, Anyway, I I, I wrote a book about Shakespeare's private life and that he wasn't all he's been cracked up to be, this wonderful patron saint of the English (laughs) language. He was a genius, there's no doubt. I wasn't doubting he'd written his own (laughs) plays, like some people say, oh, they were written by somebody else. I wasn't saying anything like that. I was just investigating the personal life of William Shakespeare, from all the records in Stratford-upon-Avon and anywhere else. When that book came out, it got masses of publicity. And I was on um, a BBC radio show when they brought in the leading professor expert on William Shakespeare in the land, who was head of the Shakespeare Centre in Stratford-upon-Avon, which owns the house where Shakespeare used to live and all this kind of stuff. And he was sitting opposite me, this professor, and um, he was saying... I, you know, I basically gave what my idea was in, in a nutshell and a few paragraphs, and he said, absolute poppycock, absolute poppycock. <laughs> I mean, people have said that Shakespeare was a woman, that Shakespeare didn't write his plays, and this is another... I said, hold on, I didn't say that Shakespeare didn't write his plays. I'm not saying he was a woman. I'm just saying here's the historical documentation to actually show that Shakespeare wasn't regarded as somebody of importance during his day. Yes. Oh, I won't have that. No, I won't. Have, well, <laughs> prove why, why am I wrong? Well, the people have suggested all sorts of things about Shakespeare. And I said, hold on a minute. He couldn't answer it. So he kept changing the subject, but I wouldn't let him do this. And I made him look rather silly. <laughs> the next time I went to Stratford-upon-Avon to try and get into all the archives there, which are all owned by the Shakespeare Trust, Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, which is headed by this professor, which was at the time, I found that the, the security men said, oh, you're Graham Phillips, now you can't come in, you've been banned. <laughs> this guy actually wrote to the BBC and said, I will never be on your show again, you can never film any of the Shakespeare things at the BBC again, or, or the Shakespeare's house or anything, if you ever interview Graham Phillips about this again. Oh, my goodness. And, but he wasn't a... So you do get these academics, certainly in the Shakespeare thing. When I actually did 
research into eventually i got in because the, this man left and the guy who took over afterwards quite liked me so that was all right <laughs> but when i actually did my book about the holy grail and i found an item which could have been a thought i said in the middle ages this could have inspired this grail story associated with king arthur and so it wasn't such a great it wasn't saying this cup was drank from by jesus or anything it was just something that was a considered a holy relic maybe it was brought back from um, the middle east by crusader knights and who bought it in a bazaar somewhere and thought well, i can sell this to people as a, a relic of jesus i mean that was big business oh here's a splinter from the cross here's one of the nails that nailed him up yes. and he gathered all the splinters of the cross from churches around the world <laughs> you'd have enough to build a couple of houses you know <laughs> Um, and I got enough nails as well. <laughs> but he, they, they, they basically, um, I basically said, now this is a cup that in the Middle Ages inspired the Arthurian Grail story. Forget the Jesus bit, that's what they brought into it. But, and this was found in a the base of a statue in some old caves at a place called Shropshire on the English Welsh border, uh, very close to it, in a place called Whittington. And I was, um, sorry, the place called Hawkston Park, beg your pardon, Whittington is where it was kept at one point. Anyway, when this came out, again, masses of publicity. It was all, it was all over the world. I mean, even Newsweek did a whole piece on this. Man in England finds grail type thing. Can we believe him? In Italy, obviously a Catholic country, this was massive news. And a journalist one day from Italy phoned me and said, do you realise that the Pope's got involved in your story? I said, what? <laughs> they said, the Pope is involved. I said, but you're joking. He said, no, there are so many churches, abbeys and monasteries throughout the Catholic world are now coming forward and saying, this guy in England can't have the grail, we've got it here. And so there was <laughs> dozens of these grails that people claim to have, you know, that they've got pilgrims going and paying good money to see. And they said, the Pope's got to sort this out. So basically the the the... the um, some cardinal had spoken to these newspapers and said, His Holiness is considering these various claims. And he's reading this book from the man from England. I mean, it had been that was when we had the Polish Pope, John Paul II. This yes. is back in 1990, early 1990s. And so the book had been published in Polish. So I assume he read it in Polish. I mean, I presume he could speak English. I don't know. But anyway, he read it. And they said he's going to make an announcement when he comes out on a Friday, on a, every Friday afternoon, he comes out onto the, or did then, came out onto the balcony overlooking St. Peter's Square and made various pronouncements and blessings. And when he comes out, he's going to actually pretty much, after a few days of hard work, decide which one's a real grail. Oh. I assume <laughs> they had some information within the Vatican archives that told them which one it was. Yes. And anyway, the Pope came out, he mentioned my book, there was all the cameras there and film people and everything, and everyone was gathering around me saying, God, you're going to get, you, you know, if the Pope sort of says yours is real, you're going to be famous throughout the world. He came out on the Vatican, onto the balcony and he said, basically, translated into English, well, none of these are the real grail because we've got it in the Vatican. That was the first <laughs> time they'd ever said that, and the last, that was the last who ever heard of it. So there's a, a tip of there. There's just a couple of examples of um, reactions from the academic community and the church. Well, you know, that Vatican vault, I really feel we should have transparency there. And uh, there may be a Pythia or a Sybil in there somewhere. 
Well, I, don't, I mean, they've never produced anything. So they've claimed to have all sorts of things, including, believe it or not, um, Jesus's foreskin. And that might sound bizarre, but the thing is that when Jesus, at the end of his life, he was supposed to have ascended bodily to heaven, but because he was Jewish as a child, he would have been circumcised. Yes. And for, for many times over the years, the Vatican claimed, well, we've got part, the only part of Jesus that survives on the earth. They've got all sorts of strange things like files of the Virgin Mary's milk. I mean, how did that come <laughs> Blood from various, I mean, you name it. But never once before that had they ever had, claimed to have had the Holy Grail. And certainly nowhere, no time since then. My own personal feeling is he, I'm not saying the Pope himself made it up, but he's obviously being advised by his cardinals and being advised by something which is called the the Holy Office, which is basically the modern version of what used to be the the, the Inquisition. Yes. Um, although they don't burn people now, they decide about <laughs> articles of faith and what is and what isn't okay within the church who'd obviously said to him oh don't don't worry uh, your holiness we've got it here somewhere so just tell them that <laughs> so i mean that's probably what happened it's all so um juicy if you will graham and it leads into the idea of more mystery around this stuff and it's strangely validating for your work i imagine yeah i mean once i've done this book about the holy grail i thought well i'll investigate a few more biblical mysteries uh, this i and, love this um, stuff by the way thank you <laughs> another a biblical mystery and i thought okay what else what other relics are there and some people have been the, the, the big mystery in the catholic church is what happened to the virgin mary jesus's mother yes after his death now the bible all the the bible just mentions her a couple of times after jesus is crucified and she's just didn't do anything particularly special and she's just living in a room in jerusalem <laughs> with one of the disciples that's it we're not talking any more about her not how she whatever but in the early church all sorts of myths and legends grew up that the virgin mary had Various ones. One that she'd gone with St. John. No, St. St. John, I think. Yeah, with St. John to Ephesus, which is a Roman city in what's now the, uh, the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, in southern Turkey. Ephesus, she'd gone there. Another one was that she'd actually stayed in Jerusalem and had part had something to do with the founding of the original church in Jerusalem and that she'd died there and was buried there. So you'd ended up basically with these myths and legends that the Virgin Mary had died and was either buried in Jerusalem in the Valley of Jehoshaphat or she'd lived in a small cottage on the edge of this Roman city of Ephesus and was buried underneath the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis yes. in um in Ephesus. Now, how she ended up there is quite a long story, but you've got these two tombs of the Virgin Mary, one in the city of Jerusalem, which was being looked after by the Catholic Church. And they were, for years, were people, pilgrims were donating vast sums to actually go and see her tomb. And at one point, there was a body there said to be hers. Then there was another site which was said to be her tomb in Turkey, this Ephesus, and people were going there and paying money to the Orthodox Church to actually go and have the Eastern Orthodox Church to actually look at the body there or or the grave, uh, you know, the tomb there. They even reconstructed a little hut 
which they said, this is on the exact same spot and would have looked like Virgin Mary's hut where she lived. <laughs> and they did the same in Jerusalem at one point, except that they built a kind of like, a, there was a house there. They said, this is where she was staying when, when, after Jesus' death. But the Bible doesn't tell us anything like this. And these are all early legends. That, when I say early, they probably didn't arrive until around about two or 300 years after the actual Virgin Mary would have lived. Yeah. Um, so you've got these myths and you've got, a thir- you've got a third myth that basically said that at one point the Virgin Mary ascended to heaven bodily like her son Jesus. It's called the Assumption. And therefore there can't be any tomb or bones or anything. Or if there was a tomb, it was only used temporarily like Jesus is one and then she floated to heaven. Now, it was left for centuries up to the individual churchgoer which one of these stories they believed. It wasn't canonical. It wasn't, it wasn't part of um, church law, church teachings in the Catholic Church, that you had to believe one of these or the other. It was left up to you to decide. It wasn't in the Bible, so it didn't really matter. But eventually, in 1950, the Pope at the time decided that he totally believed that the Virgin Mary descended bodily to heaven and that none of these tombs were real. Now, that didn't really affect the Orthodox-controlled tomb in Ephesus, but the tomb in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, you've got all these priests priests and monks and people who'd been looking after this and charging pilgrims for centuries to come and have a look at the Virgin Mary, um, <laughs> come and have a look at her tomb, and they're basically now being cut off. So they thought, what are we going to do? So they basically sold this place off to the... Um, the Orthodox Church, and so now the Orthodox Church runs the Mary's tomb in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So they kind of got out of it, right? We, we haven't, you know, they, you don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> so what I did, I mean, I found that there was evidence that the Virgin Mary had actually escaped the persecutions of the Christians in the Roman world, and eventually ended up outside the Roman world at that point because it was before the invasion in Britain, before the Romans invaded Britain in 43 AD. And she'd actually ended up here. And when one of the first Christian missionaries later from the Catholic Church turned up in Britain some centuries later, they found that the Brit- uh, some British Christians that were still here at that time were convinced that the tomb of the Virgin Mary lay on a, an island to the west of Britain called Anglesey. It's also, it was named by the ancient Britons as a place called Mona, which basically means Lady Island, mm. which, and there's a <laughs> church right in the middle of it, St. Mary's Church, which goes way back to, you know, it's, got, it's, it's centuries old and it may have been built on the foundations of another church and another church before that. There's a lot of evidence for it. As they do. And Mary was supposed to be buried there. So I investigated all this and I said, okay, there's this other Virgin Mary possibility. But I pointed out that the church had deliberately covered up the um, the whole thing about them making money out of this tomb of the Virgin Mary in, 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 in Jerusalem. <laughs> now, what happened then was that um, my book, which was actually, a, I mean, it's called The Virgin Mary Conspiracy. Now, the thing about conspiracy, back then the word conspiracy wasn't a dirty word. 
Right. There's a conspiracy if a number of people are involved to cover something up or whatever. Yes. And this would seem to have been what happened in the church. Now, when they talk about conspiracy theorists, it's people who believe in the earth is flat, we never went to the moon, and <laughs> you name it. They're not kind of, it's not considered, I wouldn't call it the Virgin Mary conspiracy now, but that's what I'm stuck with it. Yeah. Just the same as my book about Shakespeare was called the Shakespeare conspiracy <laughs> because there was a conspiracy by academics over the years to make Shakespeare appear to be a wonderful man, the patron saint of the English language, just during the time of the British <laughs> Empire, and not some drunken man who got involved in fights. So anyway, so I pointed this out. The book became very popular. It started, um, I, I know people whose children were at Catholic schools, and their parents said to me, oh, you know, we've, um, our, you know, our children have been reading your book at school. The teachers have, you know, told them to read it and see what they think of it. Well, when the Vatican heard about this, they excommunicated me. Now, that requires the signature of the Pope himself, who I'd already upset, presumably, by claiming to have the Holy Grail, because it was the same gentleman, Pope John Paul II at this point, who was still Pope. Now, I didn't even know this. And incidentally, I'm not a Catholic. I was actually brought up as a Methodist. I've got nothing to do with the Catholic Church. I was never communicated. So how can I be excommunicated? But I only knew about it one day when a journalist phoned me from Italy to say, and then I got more phone calls. Oh, you do know you've been excommunicated. What have you got to say about that? And I said, well, I'm not even communicated. How can they excommunicate me? Don't I have to go through a ritual? We burned at the stake or something. And they said, no, no, but, you, you know, your name is there along great figures like Galileo and uh, others that were Henry VIII, all excommunicated. Come on, Graham, this, this is wonderful. I said, well, okay, but how did it happen? He said, well, what they actually do in the Catholic Church is every month this holy office meets. Remember, this is what used to be the Inquisition. It's got its own massive offices there overlooking St. Peter's Square next to the Pope's personal apartment. (laughs) And they they look through all these books that they consider to be heretical or damaging to the church and automatically put them on a list so that Catholic schools throughout the world can't have those books in them. Basically, right, this book's banned. But in order to ban somebody's writing because of some ancient uh, tradition, they also have to excommunicate them. So hundreds of people every month are being excommunicated who have no idea about it. And most of them aren't even Catholics. It's so that the books don't end up in schools. So not only has the Pope said, no, he hasn't got the grail, got involved, he's personally excommunicated me. So if I became a Catholic, there's no way I'd ever have to believe I'd go to heaven or anywhere else unless the Pope himself, signed, the one who's there now, signed a Pope Francis, signed some piece of paper that says, right, you're re-communicated. But I, I haven't any thought to becoming a Catholic, so I'm probably all right. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, that's the kind of thing that happens. You were a thorn in the side. I love it. There's talk about a rebel. So, okay, Graham, with this kind of stuff, I'm wondering, have any real serious genealogist approached you and welcomed your information and how you, you know, Arthur, for example, but you have all these examples of bloodline uh, work that changes the narrative, have any embraced your work? Oh, yes, there's been plenty of historians and <clears throat> archaeologists and others who, you know, in academic world, who have actually embraced me. I mean, for example, when I wrote perhaps, which was my most controversial book, 
which was called uh, The Moses Legacy. Yes. Which was all about the fact that I knew where the mountain of God was. Now, the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai, is where God spoke to Moses, appeared before the Israelites, and gave Moses the Ten Commandment tablets, and then instructed them about how to make the Ark of the Covenant out of gold that they'd stolen from Egypt when they um, during the Exodus. This is a really important holy site to the ancient Jews and also to Christianity. And there is a place that is thought, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us where this mountain of God was. Uh, it's also where Moses uh, sees the burning bush and first hears the word of God. It's obviously a very important place for the ancient Israelites. But nobody, the Bible doesn't tell us where it is. There's no ancient writings that tell us where it was, seemingly, not in the Bible. And, um, but it just so happened that there are two books that were taken out of the Bible uh, called the first and the second book of Maccabees. They were taken out at some point by the, uh, the Catholic Church, as you now know it, was founded in the 300s by a Roman emperor called Constantine. Yes. He used Christianity to unite his empire, and he didn't outlaw other religions, but he made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. So from 325 AD on, the Roman Empire was itself Catholic. And this is how the Roman Catholic Church started. That's why it's called that. Catholic, incidentally, means universal. It was the only church until the Reformation in the 1500s, you know, when Protestant churches began to appear. The Catholic Church was it, apart from in the eastern part of what was the Roman Empire, you got the Greek Orthodox Church or the yes. Russian Orthodox Church, yeah. as it's depending on what country it's in, the Orthodox Church. But in the Western Europe, it's the Catholic Church, that was it. And what happened was that um, the, at some point, these two books, these two Jewish or ancient books from ancient Judea, which had been included in the Bible, the first and second book of Maccabees, were taken out. The Catholic Church put them back in at some point. Uh, which is interesting, but the Protestant church doesn't have it. It's really quite an interesting <laughs> why they took them out, why they... But in there, it helps to reveal that people at the time, in around about six, approximately 600 BC, 587, or 597, if I remember rightly, BC, the Babylonian Empire, which was centered on what's now Iraq, invaded Israel and took over Jerusalem. And at this point, the Ark of the Covenant was supposedly hidden by a man called Josiah, I think, if I remember right. It's been so many years since I've written this. <laughs> and it talks about him hiding this, uh, this Ark in the mountain of God. So they must have known where it was. So I thought, if I look back through the Bible at the time of Moses and what's written then, is there anybody actually giving some clues? And there was something there in the Bible all the time that others had completely seemed to have overlooked. <laughs> there are two descriptions, for example, of an event that happens when the Moses leads the children of Israel after they've left Egypt, after the Exodus, after they crossed the Red Sea. He leads them to the mountain of God. And when he arrives there, all the, the Israelites are dying of thirst. So he performs a miracle by striking his staff against a rock and out comes water and they're all, their thirst is quenched. Now, this same miracle is described twice 
once in the book of Exodus and once in the book of Numbers or is it Deuteronomy? Again, it's some years ago, but it's described twice in different places in the Bible. And if you actually couple those together, one of them tells us exactly where it is in a kingdom called Edom, which is in the south of what's now part of Jordan, at a place called what we now call Petra, which was a, a, um, a there's an amazing ruins there from Roman times. Yes. Um, it's called the Rose Red City of Petra because you've got all these buildings cut out in the sandstone rock. But many years earlier, there was, in fact, um, a, a, it was occupied, that area. And we're told that that's where Moses performs this miracle. doesn't say there's a mountain of God there. But the, on the other occasion, we are actually told he performs this at the mountain of God. Well, if you go to Petra and you see all these mountains around it, there's actually, when you get there, and this is an astonishing thing because no one seemed to have put this together, there's actually a Bedouin shrine there called Ain Musa, which means the, the, the spring of Moses, <laughs> where, which you've got like this bath area where there's holy water comes out from this, um, this stream that comes through the rocks. And they, the local Bedouin, in Bedouin tradition, believe that this was the very rock that Moses struck his staff against. So not only have you got local legends building up with the local people, this is where he struck, this is where Moses uh, performed the miracle, this is therefore the mountain of God. You've actually got, in the Bible, if you just connect these two descriptions of the same event, one of them tells us that where it was, the other one calls it the mountain of God. So if you look <laughs> at the mountain that rises above this spring, this sacred spring, um, it's called Jebel Madaba, and that is what I proposed was the historical mountain of God. I've forgotten what question I'm answering. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm what was I trying to lead up to with it? I'm riding this wave with you. Um, um, basically, what? what I'm trying to say is that a lot of this stuff is already there. You, I mean, I basically thought no one's ever suggested that this place in southern Jordan, Petra, was where the mountain of God was. They all think it's in southern Egypt uh, at a place called Jebel Musa, which means the mountain of Moses, um, because... The Emperor Constantine decided it was in 325 AD. I think his mother had had a dream or something, but that's what it was. So they built a monastery there, St. Catherine's, which is still there. That's where all the pilgrims go now. No one had ever thought, well, it might be somewhere else. I mean, they had, but they were looking all over the place. And I thought, the Bible itself tells us where it is. <laughs> and when I went there, all the topography, what was strong, not only the local people saying, yeah, we've known it's been here for years, no one had thought of asking the local Bedouin people who had lived in that area for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, moved around that area just as the ancient Israelites did, they're nomadic people. If anyone's going to know, ask them. Yes. And so you, I go to a place <laughs> where I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if anybody else has ever figured this out, only to find that the local people had figured it out centuries ago. But when you go up this mountain, there are so, there are so many features that that, that um, connect with what's said in the Bible about the mountain of God. For example, when the Israelites camped below the mountain in a valley, I found the place where that's likely to be. Incidentally, that also appears in the Indiana Jones film. In the Indiana Jones film, The Last Crusade, where he goes searching for the grail, the place he finds the grail 
is actually in a real place at Petra, which is called <laughs> the the uh, the treasury. It's a great big temple cut into the rock. Some people may be, remember seeing it. Yes. That's a real place. And that is where, according to if you take what the description in the Bible is, that's where you first enter this, this valley. That's where we are told in, in this valley where the ancient Israelites camped when they arrived at the mountain of God, they were sore afraid because they heard, as it were, this is the way the Bible describes it, <laughs> the sound of a great trumpet exceedingly loud. And while I was there, one of the Bedouin guides said to me, you know, there's, I mean, I didn't say, you know, there's a, he didn't even think about this being connected with the Bible or, or anything, but he just said that uh, this is very interesting. When the wind blows from a certain direction through this rocky gorge, it makes a really strange sound. And when I came down, I just got a bit of this. When I went up the mountain and came down again, I heard the wind blow through this rocky gorge and it sounded for all the world like a bizarre cacophony of Buddhist prayer horns. It went just for a few moments. I'm thinking that describes what the Israelites heard. They can't explain it. They think it's uh, perhaps an act of God. So anyway, there was many other features that figured with the Bible. And um, it's basically a lot of this stuff was just, it's not that I had to find manuscripts that literally no one had seen that stuck away in some vault somewhere and no one's ever seen them. A lot of this stuff is there to be, well, no one's just ever really looked at the Bible and that's, you know, realised it was all, t- it, it, it was there in the Bible telling us where this is. <laughs> and when you go there, the local people have got a myth and legend about this is where it is. So, but no one had taken any notes of any of this stuff. I wonder if during these other periods, historically, if they weren't thinking, having foresight that there was going to be some sort of evolutionary experience with Homo sapiens, that we would at some point be able to put together these narratives that they were desperately trying to keep separate because this is all quite logical. And this is one of the things I love about your work and the steps you take within your work is so much of it's right there. And you point out the logic in it. Well, I've just remembered incidentally, and this is, you know, people who look at my work sensibly and sort of say, you know, without any preconceived ideas. And I'll say, wow. And you are, the question you'd ask me is did I are any academics or 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 people who are um, interested in genealogies and that sort of thing? Do, do they sort of uh, what have they said about your work? Well, I have had, as I said, quite a lot of them have actually privately said to me, you know, this is great stuff, but we can't really um, get involved in this because you know the academic community don't like us getting involved with other religious things or things to do with mythology and so on. But the reason I mentioned that story is that when my book, The Moses Legacy, came out, all about the search for the mountain of God, I got an invitation from Oxford University to give a talk there at Magdalen College to the leading members of Mensa, you know, Mensa with people with the highest intelligence in the world. So there was me, the guy (laughs) who actually was in charge of Mensa. He basically was so, you know, taken back by this, what I'd written. He said you've got to give a talk to the most intelligent people in the world and see what they make of it. So there was me standing in front of all these people (laughs) who had an IQ of like three times mine. And I remember saying, well, thank you very much for inviting me to Mensa. 
um, and giving me this Mensa T-shirt, I'm sure that I can <laughs> basically, you know, you've making me honorary member of Mensa for a day because I'm so far below you in intelligence. I can make you all honorary cretins. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, being highly intelligent, they didn't find that at all funny. That they just thought, oh right, they thought that was some information I'd come up with. So they just they weren't upset by me. Afterwards, they were all coming up saying, "That's really fascinating." Yeah, the logic does seem to make sense. So anyway, I mean, I'm trying. I I suppose I'm showing (laughs) off a bit, saying I was invited to talk to the most intelligent people in the world. But um, they quite, you know, they they liked it. So I've got, I do have a lot of help from people, but they're not going to write books about me. Well, isn't that talk on your YouTube channel? I think I've I listened to it. I believe. Yes, it's up there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's under talks. I just listened to it. I believe it's incredible. Uh, I want to kind of wind down this first section and give a teaser as to where we want to go, where I want to go, with all this kind of warm up. I'm deeply interested in bloodlines, obviously, and how they may have crossed over. There may be cross points here with them in your research. So I'm interested in your research, obviously. And I want to look at different ideas of, and in particular, when I was looking at the uh, images of Owen, Arthur, and how he's buried and how I've noticed that that burial position is a very common one. It's a, it's a fetal position, basically. And how that could have possibly played into some of this interesting bloodline purity. So we'll go there. And I'm also interested in looking at paranormal experiences you may have had on your journey. But with this said, and winding up this first hour, Graham, how do people find you in the world? Well, my website is grahamphillips.net. So just imagine me with a net over my head. That's how you remember it. It's not <laughs> .com, it's grahamphillips.net. But if you just type into Google Graham Phillips author, you'll on the first page you'll come up with loads of stuff. There's another Graham Phillips out there. There's one other called, who's an actor. Um, but you can clearly see that's not me. He's like sort of fairly young and um, and it's nothing to do with But I'll, be, I'll come up with a load of stuff on the first page of Google if you just search Graham Phillips author. I mean, but if you do get to my website, there's links there to my YouTube, which is all, if you just put YouTube, Graham Phillips author, you'll find my YouTube channel with loads of films I've made, you know, about all the various research I've done, plus a load of TV interviews I've done, not all of them, but some of them are there. Um, invest, you know, where archaeologists have helped me look for the grave of King Arthur and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, grahamphillips.net. And that information will be in the show notes. So it's been a great pleasure, and I'll see you on the other side of this. And there he goes, Graham Phillips, the one and only. I would like to thank the producers of this show, Christy Tesmer, Jason Lamson, Marcy Shapiro, Marin Kramer, Melanie Poe, Michael Watcher, Santa Rebecca, and Patrick Newland, as well as the other patrons through my Patreon. Thank you kindly. As we go into the second hour, it gets a little bit warmer and a little more cozy, as you know. The first hour is always a warm-up 
and I hope that with all this, you have started to see or are starting to see how deep the mysterious world is, and yet, sometimes it's all so simple. Everything's in plain sight, and dot connecting is a wonderfully fulfilling exercise in neuroplasticity. Thank you for joining me in the Cosmic Salon.